Hi, church family. I'm Sarah, the interim admin coordinator. Our passage for this week is Matthew 7, 15 to 23. Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus you will recognize them by their fruits. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name, and cast out demons in your name, and do many mighty works in your name? And then will I declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Well, thank you to Sarah for reading our scripture for us this morning. Before we dig into this text that Sarah read for us, why don't we take a moment to check in. I would invite you to invite the Holy Spirit to speak to your heart today. Would the Spirit illuminate the good news that Jesus wants to share with you this morning through the Sermon on the Mount? And so let's do that right now. Let's take a moment and then I'll pray. And so Holy Spirit, we do invite you this morning to minister to our hearts. We invite you to remind us of the good news of Jesus. Maybe we've heard it before, but it's become stale or stagnant in our lives. I pray that you would illuminate this good news to us today. And God, I pray for those that are maybe tuning in who do not have a personal relationship with you, do not know that a relationship with you is possible. God, would you also illuminate their minds and their hearts today, God, to the need for you in their lives. We love you and we praise you. In your son's name, we pray. Amen. Well, when I was in high school, I had the opportunity to speak at a youth rally that was hosted in my city. Now, I don't remember the particulars around how this thing ended up coming together. I think it was some youth groups that got together and then the local youth uh, outreach ministry that got together to host a youth outreach or youth rally at my local high school. And someone asked me if I, as a high school student, would be willing to share a little bit about my relationship with Jesus, my testimony. And I, and I remember sharing And I don't remember all of the particulars of what I shared, but after I was done sharing, as I was leaving the school, an adult came up to me. And this was an adult that was in my local church. And he came up to me, and I'll never forget these words because, well, I'll just share the words. He said, Matt, you made following Jesus sound really, really hard. Now, aside, as an impressionable teenager, you know, kind of being like, what did I do there? Did I, did I make a mistake? I want you to just think about his words to me. Matt, you made following Jesus sound really, really hard. I remember talking to my dad about it afterwards. And I said, Dad, like, you heard what I shared. Did I share something? Like, did I make it seem too hard? And I remember my dad and I having this conversation where we really were like, but following Jesus is hard. 
following Jesus is difficult. And isn't that the case? I mean, we've been studying the Sermon on the Mount. And what have we been coming to see as Jesus reveals God's will for you and I, his followers, and for the world through the Sermon on the Mount? That following Jesus is difficult. Following Jesus is hard as we've studied each section. What we've come to see is that it is not our natural temperament to follow the ways of Jesus. I think to what Spencer taught on a bit last week. It's going to be on the screen for us in Matthew 7, 13 to 14, which begins Jesus' invitation to you and to me to follow him now that his sermon has been presented. He says, enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter by it are many, for the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life. And those who find it are few. So look what Jesus says. He says that there is a wide gate that many people will travel, but that way leads to destruction. If we look at our world, if we look at the ideological positions, I was feeling the weight of this last weekend as I began to consider some of the worldviews that are in our culture and the lies that they are telling us. And Jesus says, this is the wide gate, that, and many will go that way, but what does he say it leads to? Destruction. But then he says, there is a narrow gate, and the narrow gate is hard. Following Jesus and this narrow way is hard, but what does he say it leads to? Life. And what does he also say? He says, those who find it are few. Those who find it are Few. Now, this is Jesus inviting us to consider the Sermon on the Mount, to take seriously what he has said, to look at the sermon and at the same time look at it, but then obey him and what he has told us about God's will revealed by him. And so I would suggest, I would argue, I think we've been arguing and suggesting it throughout the entire sermon, that the way of Jesus, that the way of the Sermon on the Mount is the best, it's the most robust way. It's the good news to our culture. And so while there are all of these ideological worldviews around us, Jesus is the most robust. And what does he tell us? It leads to life. And so I would invite you, maybe you're not someone who considers Jesus as your Lord and Savior. Maybe you're not a follower of him. I would invite you to yet again consider Jesus' teachings and his invitation. Enter by the narrow gate. Yes, it is hard, but it leads to life. Now, as we consider then this invitation of following Jesus, of going about this narrow way, Jesus wants to give us then a couple of warnings about this way, things to be aware of, cautions. And so here in this section, he gets into a couple of those cautions, beginning first. Let's look at verse 15 for this first caution, this first warning. What does Jesus say? He says, beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. Now I want to look at this verse and and breaking it into two parts. First, beware of false prophets. And so the first question is, well, who are false prophets? Now certainly if we remember the context in which Jesus is teaching the Sermon on the Mount, we consider the culture of, of Jesus' time. And throughout the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus has been calling out the Pharisees and scribes and the Judaical or the Judaistic tradition 
that had set itself up as being more valuable than even the law. And so here Jesus is calling out once again the Pharisees and scribes. He's saying, beware of the false prophets. Beware of the false teaching. When people say that they represent God, but are in fact not representatives of God, and then they fail to follow me. And so that's our definition of a false prophet. Our false prophet on the screen here are those who claim to be speaking for God, but are not appointed by God and who fail to follow Jesus. In other words, the false prophet could be the gifted leader, the charismatic leader who does not follow God in the everyday stuff of life. So that is the false prophet. That is who we're to be aware of. Beware of those who claim to be speaking for God, but who are not actually appointed by God and who fail in their lives in the everyday stuff of life to follow Jesus. Well, then we ask the question, okay, well, what do these false teachers, what do these false prophets look like? And he tells us, he says, they come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. I have a picture for you that's going to appear on the screen now that illustrates this, you know, this group of sheep, and then here is this wolf disguised as a sheep. In other words, what is Jesus saying? They come to you and they look good. They're not easily identifiable. They come to you as sheep, as one of you. But what does he say? Inwardly, they are ravenous wolves. I think it's worth pointing out as well is that Jesus' description of the false prophet is also a warning about you and me. And that to you and I, these false prophets appear to be sheep. You and I can be deceived. They are not obvious in the sense of, oh, we can point them out very easily. And you and I will be attracted to follow their teaching and their leadership. You and I are drawn to them. We accept them. And you and I may even begin to follow them and their teaching. Jesus in Matthew 24 verse 11 issues this warning also about false prophets. He says this, And many false prophets will arise and they will lead many astray. Or how about Paul in 2 Corinthians 11 verse 14? He says that even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. Even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. A sheep in wolves clothing. Or how about 2 Peter 2 verses 1 to 3 and then verses 17 to 19. This will be on the screen. But false prophets also arose among the people. Just as there will be false teachers among you who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them, bringing upon themselves swift destruction. And many will follow their sensuality, and because of them the way of truth will be blasphemed. And in their greed they will exploit you with false words. Their condemnation from long ago is not idle, and their destruction is not asleep." These are waterless springs and mists driven by a storm. For them, the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved. For, speaking loud boasts of folly, they entice by sensual passions of the flesh those who are barely escaping from those who live in error. They promise them freedom, but they themselves are slaves of corruption." 
You and I would do well to heed these warnings, heed these cautions that as we are invited to follow Jesus and the narrow way to enter through the narrow gate, we must be aware that around us, as we follow, there will be teachings, there will be ideologies that will try to take us away from following Jesus. The next question we can then consider, which Jesus answers for us, is, okay, Jesus, you've described, you've provided the warning for these false prophets, but Jesus, how do we recognize them? And the answer Jesus gives, I would say, are two ways. And the first is not necessarily right here in these verses, but it's in the broad context of the Sermon on the Mount. It's a contextual consideration of do these false teachers, do they teach the Sermon on the Mount? And do they not only teach the Sermon on the Mount, are they the type of people that the Sermon on the Mount describes? The poor in spirit, if we think back to the Beatitudes. Those who fast and pray quietly, silently, not to be celebrated by those around them. What type of people are they? Are they Sermon on the Mount people? Then secondly, a way that we can recognize them, look what Jesus says here, verse 16, you will recognize them by their fruits. Now, I hope you understand that fruits here is not speaking about, you know, the trees that they have growing on their property and the type of fruit that is brought, although he uses the tree analogy. What does Jesus mean when he says fruits? Well, in the scriptures, when we look at fruit, we can think of character, right? The fruit of the Spirit on the screen, Galatians 5, 22 to 24. Paul to the Galatian church writes, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, Patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. So when Jesus says you will recognize them by their fruits, we're to look at the character of their lives. Are the fruit of the Spirit, does the fruit of the Spirit describe the character of these leaders? A second reality of fruit, or what is fruit in the scriptures, is obedience, surrender, and attachment to Jesus. I think about the vine and the branches in John 15. Look with me at verse 4 to 5 of John 15. Abide in me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me, and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. And so obedience, surrender, and attachment to Jesus. But then a third fruit that I would point out in the scriptures is evangelism or the wake of discipleship, the Great Commission. You can think about a boat, and behind a boat, a boat, a wake is left. Think of the leader or this prophet as the boat. What is the wake of their leadership? What are the types of disciples that they are forming? Are these disciples more inclined to run to Jesus or are they more inclined to run to the leader? Are the disciples disciples that want to go and make other disciples? Or do they expect their leader to be making all the disciples because the leader has propped themselves up? Jesus continues, verse 16b, he uses analogy. He says, are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? Now Jesus is now illustrating The first part of verse 16, you will recognize them by their fruits. A little bit of context to this thorn bush and figs and thistles word. In Jesus' day, 
everyone knew that the buckhorn had little black berries which be, could be mistaken could be mistaken for grapes. And then there was a thistle whose flower from a distance could be mistaken for a fig. But with both of these analogies, no one would mistake what the fruit was once they began to make wine. And so what is Jesus saying? He says, though they might be difficult to, to pick out or discern right away, you will eventually see. They will eventually be found out. Their fruit will allow us to recognize them. Jesus continues, so every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down, and it is thrown into the fire. Jesus, once again, as a parabolic theologian, uses this illustration to help us understand more the type of leader, the type of teacher that he's addressing. He says that a healthy tree bears good fruit, but a diseased tree bears bad fruit. In other words, the character of the, tr- of the fruit reveals the character of the tree. He then says a healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, and a diseased tree cannot bear good, good fruit. And when you and I understand, if you've done any bit of gardening, that this is the inevitability of gardening. Andre and I, a few years ago, put in some garden boxes, and we started to grow fruit and vegetables in our garden boxes um, at our house. Well, we discovered a couple years ago through the word of mouth from our neighbors that the, the soil in our neighborhood is extremely contaminated with lead. And it was actually advised that people in our neighborhood don't grow certain types of vegetables in the dirt of, of our neighborhood because of the lead content, then you would eat it. And so what was advised is that you would build or maybe have your garden box, they'd then layer the bottom with a, with a type of paper, uh, or, you know, you know what I mean, a gardening paper that go on the bottom of the box, and then you'd bring in outside soil. And Jesus is illustrating this exact reality. And then what does he issue? This warning in verse 19. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. These false prophets, these false teachers will be cut down and thrown into the fire. They will spend eternity apart from God. Reminds me once again of John 15 verse 1 to 2 where we read Jesus saying, I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And just a reminder, what is the fruit? It's the character, it's obedience, surrender, and trust to Jesus, and then also the wake of a leader's leader's leadership. Jesus then concludes this section with a statement of summary of what he has already said. Verse 20, thus you will recognize them by their fruits. Now, I think it's worth mentioning that Jesus, in this section, does not tell us what to do with false prophets or false teachers. He simply advises us to detect them, to discern who they are. Jesus, in this essence, is in, in what he's saying is he's not advocating a heresy-hunting mentality. You can think back to his teaching on judgment. But what he is advocating is discernment. Now, while this text, and while this warning, as part of Jesus' invitation to following him, to invite, invitation to a life of discipleship, is about false teachers, 
I think it would also be worth considering as we respond to this, our own condition before God. Our own condition. Are we following Jesus? What is the fruit in our lives of our character, of our obedience, of our surrender? What is the wake of our discipleship to Jesus? You see, you and I, we are saved from something. Our sin and our rebellion of, a, of an identity built around self. And we're saved to something. We're saved to the mission of Jesus, to obedience and discipleship of an identity built around, around what God says of us. And so here are some questions for you and I to consider because a life of fruit comes from a life of faith. The question to ask yourselves is, do you show mercy to those in need, those who are marginalized? Do you have a soft heart to these people? Do your neighbors think that you are gracious or do they think you're judgmental? If I were to ask your neighbor what they think about you, what would they say? Do we nurture love and patience with our kids? Do we nurture love and patience with our kids? Our kids are the ones that we have the opportunity to disciple in the ways of Jesus. Do we serve our spouses as Christ loves the church? Question is, do people around us fear us? So once again, while this first section is directed at false teachers, prophets, we must also look at our own lives. Well, Jesus doesn't stop there in this warning of going in the narrow way. He continues his invitation by offering us another hard warning and a word. Verse 21a, look what he says. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. Let me read that again. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. What is Jesus saying? He's saying that there are those who claim to know him, who may actually be orthodox in their beliefs and to have a track record of spiritual experience, and yet they will not spend eternity with him. These are those who are deceived. If the first section Jesus issues a warning against the deceiver, here his warning is to the deceived. Well, then we ask the question, okay, Jesus, well, if this is the warning, who will enter the kingdom of heaven? And look what he says, 16b, but the one who does the will of my Father in heaven. Well, what is the will of the Father in heaven? It's the Sermon on the Mount. Brothers and sisters, it's the Sermon on the Mount. And the chief characteristic is obedience. True believers perform the will of their Father. They don't just talk about it, they act upon it. Jesus continues, he says, On that day, speaking of the day of judgment, which we addressed a few weeks ago, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name. This is kind of the rationalization of, Lord, were we not justified? Look at our lives. We prophesied, we cast out demons, we did mighty works. Now it's first worth addressing. Notice what Jesus says. He says this is many, many people 
This isn't one or two. He's saying this is a many thing. On that day, many will say to me. It's also worth addressing that the many, not only will say, Lord, Lord, but many have participated in the miraculous, yet they are not true followers of Jesus. Now you might be saying, well, how does this work? A couple of scriptural examples. Exodus 7 and 8. The magicians of Egypt were able to replicate through their secret art some of the plagues. Or how about Matthew 24, verse 24? Jesus says this, For false Christs and false prophets will arise and perform great signs and wonders so as to lead astray, if possible, even the elect. What does he mean by the elect? The chosen people of God, the family of God, that false prophets, false Christs will perform great signs and wonders. Yet they are not followers of Jesus, so it is possible for someone to perform a great sign and wonder and yet not be a follower of Jesus. So the question then is, okay, well, what is the qualifier? Why are even those, why are even these types of people not received into the kingdom of heaven? Verse 23, Jesus gives his reason, and then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me. You workers of lawlessness. So what is the qualifier? Why are they not received into the kingdom of heaven? Jesus says, number one, he never knew them. Now I think what Jesus means by this is he's getting at the first order calling for followers of Jesus. And what is a first order calling? The first order calling for followers of Jesus is to love God. To love God. In other words, Jesus is saying that these are people who did not have tangible encounters with God. Jesus never knew them because he never experienced intimacy with them. This is the caricature of a leader or of a person who exercises the gifts of the Spirit, but who flounders at a personal level of following Jesus. I read this quote this week. Leaders are followers of Jesus before they are leaders. Leaders are followers of Jesus before they are leaders. I remember a time in my life when I was serving as a youth pastor, my first couple of years of being a youth pastor, and randomly a a past mentor of mine, a past youth pastor of mine, showed up at the church that I was pastoring at, and he came into my office, and he asked me this question. You know, we're just catching up. He said, Matt, what's your biblical rhythm these days? What are you reading? And I said to him, you know, I'm just kind of reading random verses here and there. And he said, Matt, I want to invite you to do something. He said, it is so critical that you get into the Word as you are pastoring and leading others, and that you spend time with God in this way. And so he said, what I want you to do is daily go through a book, Go through some teachings of Jesus. Go through something. But at the end of that day, I want you to write me what God revealed to you on that day. I am so deeply grateful for that challenge because that began for me a relationship with Jesus of daily dependence, of daily surrender to God, of a desire, of a hungry desire for his word. And I came to not just want the scriptures, I came to know that what I needed to want was God as he showed up in my life. 
So Jesus says, I never knew you because we never had tangible encounters, daily, regular time together. But then secondly, these are people that he never knew because they loved the miraculous more than they actually loved God. They love the works of God more than they love God himself. And they're deceived because they have performed gifts. D.A. Carson in his commentary on the Sermon on the Mount says this, The pressure of the spectacular has excluded the stability of growing conformity to the Father's will. What Carson is getting at is that we want these very, very intense Intense, spirit-driven, emotional experiences. And what can happen is we can live for those rather than just sitting in growing conformity on a day-to-day basis, submitting to the Father's will in our life. You know, many of us want kind of the big, the flashy, but it's about consistency, faithfulness, faithfulness as it relates to obedience on a day-to-day basis. You know, a marriage can have lots of up and downs, but a healthy marriage is the day-in, day-out realities of life together in the mundane. And what Jesus is calling out with these individuals is that you were after the miraculous, but you weren't after the mundane. And therefore, I never knew you. Well, then what does Jesus say? He says, depart from me, you workers of lawlessness, You know, I addressed our first order calling. Now it's our second order calling, which is what? To love others. To love others. These individuals have not loved God, and therefore they have not been enabled to love others. And therefore, Jesus defines them as workers of lawlessness or workers of evil. They are doers of evil instead of doing the Father's will. And they show no mercy or care for those in need. Once again, quoting Jesus in Matthew 24, verses 11 and 12. I read verse 11 for us earlier, but notice what Jesus says about the false prophets who will lead many astray. And many false prophets will arise and lead many astray. And because lawlessness will be increased, the love of many will grow cold. That one of the symptoms following lawlessness of not following the ways of God, not following the will of God outlined in the Sermon on the Mount, is that we'll grow cold in love for others. We'll grow cold for love for those who need help. And I think the reality is, is that as we look at this sermon, you know, I get the question from time to time as a pastor, you know, what does God want from me? What does God want from me? The first order calling, love God. Second order calling, love others. And the Sermon on the Mount is how to love God and it's how to love others. And this is Jesus' invitation. Enter through the narrow gate, but be aware That there is a way, that there is a wide gate, that many will go down. But what does it lead to? Destruction. And so the narrow gate leads to life because it's life with Jesus. And he's outlined it in the Sermon on the Mount. And so this is Jesus' invitation. Come to me. Follow me. Obey me. 
You know, we talk a lot about coming to a saving knowledge of Jesus, saving faith by God's grace, trusting that Jesus is Lord of our lives, that he's our Savior, that we are sinners. But sometimes what we've done is we've, all, we've neglected, as we've taught that, that we're also called to follow Jesus, to obey his teachings. To look at the Sermon on the Mount and say, am I obeying Jesus? Because the scriptures continually will tell us that the fruit, the works of someone's life follow their faith. You think of the scripture in James, faith without works is dead. D.A. Carson writes this, describing this for us. It is true that men are saved by God's grace through faith in Christ. But it is equally true that God's grace in a man's life inevitably results in obedience. Any other view of grace cheapens grace and turns it into something unrecognizable. In the entire history of the church, has there ever been another generation with so many nominal Christians and so few real, i.e. obedient ones? And where nominal Christianity is compounded by spectacular profession, it is especially likely to manufacture its own false assurance. This is Jesus' warning. Once again, as part of his invitation, and he includes it as part of his invitation because he wants us to consider deeply his invitation. That when we submit our lives to Jesus, when we trust him, he's saving us to something. Saving us to denial of self, to taking up our cross, to following him. Now this is heavy. And as you respond to this message today, I would ask you to consider a few questions. The first one is this. What do you love What do you love? Our loves reveal what we care about. Our loves reveal our idols. Second question to consider is what what do you want? What do you want? So what do you love, but then what do you want? What is motivating you? What is at the core of your center in your heart? Your executive center. What, what do you want? What do you really want? Do you want the things of God? Do you want the will of God as Jesus expresses for us in the Sermon on the Mount? Or do you want something altogether differently? That's a defining answer. And then third question, what does your life and your love, your obedience to someone or something, what does it reveal about these questions. You know, if I were to look at your calendar, if I were to look at your spending, if I'm to look at my own calendar, if I'm to look at my own spending, what does this reveal about what I love, what I want? Does it align with the Sermon on the Mount? Or does it align with the wide gate that Jesus tells us many will go down, but where does he say it leads? Destruction. Or do the priorities, the loves in my life represent what we see in the Sermon on the Mount? God's will expressed through Jesus as the narrow way. 
I don't know what the answer for you is to these questions, but I know what they are for me. And I am grateful that Jesus lived the life that I could not live and died the death that I should have died and came back to life, securing me life eternal. But what I know is that I have a ways to go in my discipleship, in my obedience, in the fruit of my life. And I'm grateful that he empowers me by his spirit to do it. And that is also the good news of the Sermon on the Mount, that we are not left alone with obedience to this, these texts, but that the spirit comes and empowers us to do what Jesus has laid out for us here. If you've never considered following Jesus, I want to invite you today to do that. If you're someone that is a follower of Jesus, yet you recognize today that you need to confess your sin, confess your shortcomings, I would invite you to do that, to turn, to share that with somebody else. And so let's pray. Lord Jesus, I thank you for your teaching here in the Sermon on the Mount. And Jesus, it is difficult. It is hard. But God, we want to trust you. We want to obey you. We want to surrender to you. And we want the fruit of our lives to be recognizable to those around us, that we are followers of Jesus. We want our lives to be recognizable as the narrow way, the narrow gate, not the wide gate. Empower us to do so. And may we live out this in community, surrounded by people who want the same. We love you and we thank you. Amen.